Today on episode number 505 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, how role clarity and boundaries can help us thrive with Karen Costa. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, Karen Costa joins me once again on Teaching in Higher Ed. Karen Costa is a faculty development facilitator specializing in online pedagogy and trauma-aware higher education. Karen loves leading faculty learners through fun, interactive, and supportive professional development experiences. Karen's first book, 99 Tips for Creating Simple and Sustainable Educational Videos, focuses on helping faculty and teachers to make creative use of videos in their classrooms. Karen is involved in various faculty development initiatives, including as a facilitator for the Online Learning Consortium, Online Learning Toolkit, and Lumen Learning. She spent four years as a regular writer for women in higher education. Her writing has also appeared in Inside Higher Education, The Philadelphia Inquirer, On Being, and Faculty Focus. Karen graduated from Syracuse University with a bachelor's in sociology. She holds a master's in education in higher education from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a CAGS in educational leadership from Northwestern University. Karen has a professional certification in trauma and resilience levels one and two from Florida State University a Trauma-Informed Organizations Certificate from the University of Buffalo's School of Social Work, and a Certificate in Neuroscience Learning and Online Instruction from Drexel University. Karen is a certified yoga teacher and Level 1 Yoga for Arthritis teacher. As you'll hear about more in the interview, she lives in Massachusetts with her family. Karen Costa, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. So excited to be back with you. We always have a good time and happy to connect with you and your listeners. It's always interesting to me when we meet new people and they, even if it's at a university and they're not quite familiar with what is broadly known as the scholarship of teaching and learning, that's oftentimes I might meet someone who's not familiar with that body of research. I'm going to ask you a very broad, unfair question, but what are some of the things that come to mind in that very broad area of research where you feel like a lot of people's research time attention has been paid to in the broad areas of scholarship of teaching and learning. Active learning, accessibility, universal design for learning, uh, multimodal learning are the ones jumping to the forefront for Mm -hmm. me. And there is an area that you're here to talk to us about today that is quite not researched hardly at all, but before we get there, one that I have, you know, there are some books out about and some studies, et cetera, would be the broad area of trauma-aware pedagogy. Could you help those who might be listening who aren't familiar with that body of research and and what exactly trauma-aware pedagogy is? 
Absolutely. So you might hear it referred to as trauma-informed. You might hear trauma-informed teaching or pedagogy or trauma-informed care. I use the term trauma-aware teaching because in the literature, there is some sense that trauma-informed is like the end goal. (laughs) And uh, trauma-aware is really step one. It's just getting a basic awareness across campus of what is trauma What is the trauma response? So the trauma is the thing that happens. And then the trauma response is how we respond to it. And there's a whole, you know, multitude, positive and negative. And trauma-aware teaching is specifically considering how that trauma response impacts how folks learn. And also part of my work is how it influences how folks teach. So my goal is to, I really work with people sort of at that foundational level. I am the simple and sustainable, not fancy gal. So I want every faculty in higher ed to know what trauma is, to know what the trauma response is, and to know how it shows up in the classroom. And then I want to give them sort of some tools and some tips about how they can begin bringing that into their pedagogy in a really simple and sustainable way. I So appreciate how you're able to take these very complex things, very difficult, necessary issues for us to explore, but then find ways we can actually put our our fingers on them and and our hands on them and, and put them as part of our practice. As you said, all of us, I feel like if you have been reading any headline, it doesn't really matter the publication. We have those moments where we want to go, wait, 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 hold on, hold up. I think we've, I think we're going off on a on a plane here that's important for us to talk about. Tell us about a moment where you were reading an article in the Chronicle discussing some of the tensions that faculty are slash were experiencing with regard to their own roles. Yeah. And maybe I can put my hands on this article and we can link to it for folks. But I was reading an article in the Chronicle about sort of this sense that students were becoming more demanding. That's not how I see it or how I would phrase it, but that was kind of what I, how I felt it was framed. Um, And I think a lot of folks feel that way. And the first faculty that were referenced in the article, one of them was running a discord, which is like a, I don't even know how to describe it because I'm getting old. So it's, it's like a social, (laughs) my son would describe it, but my, my 14 year old would describe it better, but I'm on it. It's like a social networking tool and you can communicate with people and send messages there. So she was running a discord for her students and was apparently, you know, it took off and all of her students were in there, like expressing all these needs, academic, but also social and psychological. And she got like completely burned out trying to manage this discord. And the second professor, she had a student who had missed the final and the student couldn't come to the makeup date. So the student was very angry at her for not having the uh, make another makeup date. So it really, I, I have written, I'm, I'm sure we can link to the, the book chapter that I wrote on scope of practice for educators which came out last year, hasn't really been at the forefront for me. But when I read that article, I was like, oh my gosh, like I was just yelling, scope of practice, scope of practice. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it answers so many questions that people are struggling with right now in, again, a really simple, sustainable, not fancy way that can benefit, you know, you all know what, that this is my thing that can benefit both faculty and students, that is the sweet spot. And I think a scope of practice for educators can do that. Take us back to even earlier before that article that that evoked these 
this I, what I'm sensing as empathy and and for these individuals who are just really trying so hard to to meet some some yeah. difficult to meet needs. Take us back to when you almost left higher education. Yeah. So around 2016, I guess I had pretty much, <laughs> I pretty much had it. And I started a, it, I had had it in many ways. And I started a yoga teacher training and I attended a training on yoga for arthritis run by the program yoga for arthritis. And I would love if we can link to this because I bet a lot of people would, would love this. It's an excellent program. It's an evidence-based yoga program developed by a PhD in public health from Johns Hopkins University named Stephanie Munoz. And uh, basically arthritis is growing. More people are getting it and more people are getting it younger, which is a whole nother story. So I was training in yoga for arthritis and my teacher started talking about scope of practice. And she was explaining to us the difference between what we could be doing as a yoga teacher trained in yoga for arthritis and, for example, what she might do as a yoga therapist, which is a more extensive training, and what physical therapists might do as part of their scope of practice, and what orthopedic surgeons might do as part of their scope of practice. And bells started ringing, and I was like, oh, this, why don't we talk about this in higher ed? (laughs) (laughs) why don't we have, it it felt very calming to me. Like you, Karen, you're not going to talk to this person about their medication, their arthritis medication. You're not going to do a treatment plan for this person, right? You're certainly not going to perform surgery for this person. You can offer a general yoga class that people with arthritis know you have an awareness of arthritis and you can offer some very basic support with that. And that felt like such a relief. Like I don't, I don't have to know all of these things or do all of all of these things. So I started to get curious about what that would look like in higher education because higher education to me at that point felt like a free for all, which was one of the reasons why I was thinking of leaving. Long story short, I'm still here. It's 2023 as we record this. Um, <laughs> I ended up getting a concussion probably about six months after that, and I kind of had to like take off work completely for quite a while. And when I came back, I came back to higher ed. So um, can't shake it, I guess. But I came back with going through that concussion and and certainly the yoga teacher work, training work I did really brought me back with a greater clarity about the role that I want to have in higher ed and how to take care of myself in higher ed. And scope of practice is a big part of that. Now take us to slightly more recent, early 2020. How did things change? Yeah. So early 2020, we went into lockdown. My lockdown day was March 13th. I have a date that I will never forget. When That was the first day my son didn't have school because of COVID. And it was chaos. So there's obviously there was the, the horror of people dying of COVID all around us and not knowing what this thing is and how you could exactly get it and all of that. And meanwhile, this place where I work, higher education specifically, I do a lot of work in online learning, was just turned upside down overnight. And so many faculty were were forced into emergency remote teaching, many of whom had never taught or learned online or remotely in their entire lives. And we are all doing this within this collective trauma. 
So there's this dual crisis of COVID, but also the mental health aspects, doing it in isolation, which we we now know that the isolation of COVID was perhaps as damaging, which I'm not saying that we shouldn't have done things the way we did them, but isolation is a really... Um, really damaging to to us as social animals. So scope of practice really started to generate then when I saw people being asked to like completely revamp their entire course and learn how to teach online, but nothing was removed from their (laughs) and all, all, all the while doing that with their own trauma. And then you've got students in the classroom bringing their trauma into the classrooms. I got really concerned about secondary trauma which is very well known in the caregiving fields. First responders, clinicians are trained to look out for secondary trauma. That's when you're exposed to somebody else's trauma and you can develop symptoms, even if you haven't experienced the trauma directly. So I was hearing from faculty telling me these stories of students coming to them, sharing their traumas in the classroom, because for, you know, once once we started coming back, And it was just, it was too much. It was too much. And in many ways still is. So I wrote the scope of practice and developed that work probably early 2021, as we started returning to campus as a tool for faculty, you know, as a a, sort of a language for them to have. And we'll talk more about what this looks like to say, this is mine and this is not mine. And to do it in a really simple way not only to t- help them take care of themselves, but also to take care of students. So it's, again, it's this is absolutely based on mutualism, benefiting faculty and students as this crisis and, and continues. And as we we see, we, we now live in sort of this era of crisis. It's a tool for faculty to take care of themselves and take care of their students. I am going to invite you in just a moment to read a little bit from a table from the chapter that you wrote here about this. This is mine. This is not mine. I'm going to remind people of a story I've shared some time ago, though, if you're a newer listener, you may not have heard this one. But I remember I I used to work for a computer training company when I first graduated. I was a computer instructor. And it was an interesting experience. They call these in the training and development field, they call these smile sheets. You know, you're not actually, (laughs) you're not actually being rated every single day on anything that people might call substantive. It it ends up just being like, how much did people like you, even though it's not like, do you like me? Yes, no, like those little elementary school Mm. (laughs) sheets that the kids fill out, but it, but it really does come down to that. So I would tend to get rated on a scale of one to 10 every single day of my working life, except unless I was prepping or what have you, but, but and I, and I would do really, really well. 9.9, mm. 9.9, 10, 10, 10, 9.9. And it's a lot of like a different kind of pressure than we might put on ourselves, although we certainly know we put a lot of pressure on ourselves when it comes to course evaluations or we can that way. But so anyway, I remember there were these two women. We used to teach really large 24 students for eight hours. <laughs> walking them through stuff. And these two Mm. women sat in the back corner and talked to each other the entire time and were really rude throughout the entire day. And then gave me, I think it was straight ones or straight fives. I don't even remember. I just remember it was not what I was accustomed to receiving as my sense of worth, which is, by the way, super healthy. And for those reading Mm. the transcripts, there's a lot of sarcasm in my voice right now. But uh, anyway, so so I remember going to my manager at the time and, and he he had me literally hold these evaluations or piece of paper that they would put in a locked box in the classroom. He had me hold them with open palms. Just, I want you to yeah. hold these. Are these useful to you? 
are they helpful to you to be better at what you do? And are they informative to you? I said, no. And, and he literally took them and tore them. And it's this, you know, yeah. radical tearing noise and everything. And they went in the trash. And that was a kind of heresy for that. You, you, were, you weren't allowed to look at those. They went in the locked box. So it's just the fact that we could do that. You know, it's a, it's a pivotal memory for me that feels very yeah. empowering to make that choice. So when I saw this table that I'm going to invite you to explain to us and then read from, it yeah. immediately resonated, Karen, because I just think about that one powerful exercise and how much more all of us that just struggle with knowing what is mine. I don't know what's mine. And just hearing it and seeing it put out in these concrete, powerful ways, I think could be very instructive to all of us and very powerful. And then you're going to even empower us to go beyond that to personalize it for ourselves. But but talk to us a little bit about this mine, not mine table, and maybe sure. read off some of the items that are there. Yeah. So a couple things. I actually, in advance of this podcast, I have been meaning to do this. And when I got your invitation, it gave me a little nudge. So I created a scope of practice template with a mine, not mine exercise. And I will send you that link. And I hope we can share that with folks. So it's it's a Google Doc, but I know I might have some Notion geeks that that follow <laughs> your podcast. So I've also got, a, got it in Notion as well. Awesome. Um, and you can also do this with just a piece of paper and you write mine on the left and not mine on the right and see what comes up. And the other thing I was, folks that I was telling Bonnie before, I wrote this in 2021 and my scope of practice, we're recording this at the end of 2023, it's changed and that's okay. This is not meant to be set in stone. It's meant to evolve. The world has changed. I have changed. So my scope of practice has changed. I'm actually going to start here at the bottom. This is the first one jumping out at me. So I wrote in the mind column, I wrote refer, 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 kind of like Thoreau saying simplicity, simplify three times. So you are referring your students in a crisis to the appropriate parties. And then in the not mine column, I wrote not my problem. So that's not for me. I know that saying like, oh, a student's in crisis. I'm not a counselor, so I can't help them. Not my problem. That's not mine. That's not for me. But referring them to the appropriate person is for me. That's that is part of my qualifications and it's part of my my responsibility. I this is a good one. We could do a whole podcast on this one, Bonnie. Mine is to develop self-awareness. And not mine is to be overly focused on the behaviors of others. So what that says to me is that I need to focus on my pedagogy where I have control to focus on my teaching choices and not be obsessed with what students are or are not doing. I see that a lot with faculty. I I think I might've said this on the last podcast I was on with you, buddy. I'd probably say it a lot. We can't control other people. I know. And I always say it in a sad voice because I'm so sad. <laughs> I can't, can barely control myself most days. So yeah. So that's a mine, not mine. Oh, here. And here's one more. Let's do three. Good things come in threes. Mine is empathy and not mine is counseling. This one is so huge and it's beca- it's a growing problem that I'm seeing. It's getting worse, not better. So we're seeing this mental health crisis among our students. And I'm seeing more talk about training faculty to do this mental health work in the classroom. I get really I get really edgy about that one. Often that's done without extensive training and often it's done without taking anything off of 
their plate. So we're just piling on, which is going to burn faculty out and that's going to hurt faculty and that's going to hurt students. So I can empathize with my students around their mental health crises. And I do, I do it every day because I have many students who are struggling with that, but it is not mine to counsel them in that regard. That has the potential to do immense harm to the student because I am not a counselor and to to ultimately harm me. So yeah, that's a big mind, not mine. It's mine to have empathy. It is not mine to be a counselor. I would love to hear you speak a little bit when you talk about referring to what extent do you first, and I realize these are very personal choices. This is is not something that you're saying everybody needs to adopt your list and then come up with even more to get bonus points, that kind of thing. But (laughs) I'm curious just because of my, my thoughts and wrestling over many decades on this is the refer, refer, refer to what extent do you see the reducing of stigma to, to help facilitate those referrals more effectively as yours or not yours? Oh, that's absolutely mine. Um, And I say that not only as that, that awareness has grown for me as I've dealt with my own mental illness crap. And I wrote an, I put this in the Chronicle, so I'll happily share it here. Or where did I put it? I don't know. It was an inside hire of the Chronicle. (laughs) I I have ADHD, uh, that I'm also in perimenopause, and that's like blown everything up, including mental health stuff. So um, I, yes, that's impacted, the stigma has impacted me and my ability to get correct care and my like resistance to accessing help and medication because I want to do it on my own and I don't want to talk about it. And like that was making me sicker. So I absolutely, I feel that in my bones. And one of the ways I reduce stigma is I am transparent about those challenges with my students. I know that's not for everybody. And it's very, very, I I disclose that to my students when appropriate. So it's not, I'm not posting constant videos in my class about my mental health story. I, For me, that's not the way it works. But if a student discloses in an introductory discussion, for example, that they live with anxiety, I'm responding to them and saying, me too, because I want them to know their college professor lives with anxiety and you can do things. You can, it's a both and it's a, it sucks. And you can do, do things even though you have anxiety. So absolutely breaking down that stigma, but I, it's, I talk about it all the time in my classes, sharing resources as a group with the group about counseling resources on campus, external resources outside of the college. Some students might've had a bad experience with the college at office X, and that's keeping them from going. You know, it might not even be a bad experience with the counseling office. They might be willing to call an external agency. So I'm sharing those resources with my students and I'll, and I'm able to, and happy to use myself as an example of somebody who's reached out for help and benefited from that. So yeah, there's, and that's a lot of work that I just said, (laughs) and we're increasingly being asked to do that kind of work. I talk about this a lot, course loads and class sizes need to be right-sized in the post, we're not even post-COVID, in the continuing COVID era for the emotional. I'm not doing just what I said. I'm not counseling anybody, but just that referral process and decreasing the stigma. It's, It's labor that's happening in our classrooms. So I would really love lots of forward thinking administrators 
to really take a hard look at course loads and class sizes and ask if they are right-sized for this era of crisis and for the mental health challenges that fa both faculty and students and staff are experiencing. And if I can just stick this in there, just since you brought it up, maybe we don't reduce everything to just pay people more if they have to teach more and pay them less if they have to teach less so that your enrollment problems become creating mm -hmm. even greater precarity. Sorry, I have just some... Yeah, no. some feelings and thoughts uh, about this. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of Thoreau. I don't know why Thoreau is coming to me today, but I might be quoting him badly, but he said something along the lines of the cost of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. And I'm thinking of that. You can pay people more, but if they're burned out, like how much life are they exchanging for that, that increased salary and people are burned out and they're going to paying them more doesn't decrease their burnout. So we really need, yeah, I, I'm liking the word right-sizing to think about how we can approach this issue. You know, I wrote in the book chapter that we've mentioned a couple of times that higher education of today is not the higher education of 100 years ago. And we've had this shift from elite access to mass access. And I think that we really need to look at the work faculty are doing. And now, um, certainly the era, the era of COVID the era of COVID, COVID has changed everything. Like, can we get it together and continue to talk about that? It's not over. It's not past. We're not back to normal. It turned, it changed everything and turned everything upside down. The, the faculty student relationship has fundamentally changed. Students relationship with the university has fundamentally changed. The labor market shifts. And we really, I think, need to take a look at the work that we are now doing in the classroom, which to me seems increasingly relational in nature. What are we giving folks? And if you're giving folks more to do, you've got to take something away or people are going to burn out and it hurts them and it hurts our students, which ultimately hurts, hurts the bottom line as well. So, yeah. I'd love to have us walk through an example, one that comes up, I think, for a lot of people, and that would be making some determinations around a student who is eligible for an incomplete, according to your Ooh, university's policies. I can talk about incomplete. <laughs> and I mean, because we've been talking a lot about role clarity and boundaries, mm -hmm. and I had such a great conversation with a colleague the other day trying to navigate that for a couple folks in enrolled in a class I'm teaching. And so how do we think that through in terms of protecting our boundaries, also being wanting to be equitable in our teaching for people who really are facing things? Anyway, I'd, I'd love to hear how you think through both from the student perspective and also from the faculty member's perspective. Yes. Okay. Incompletes is a, I love it. It's a great topic. I know we, I, we're not doing a good job of it. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> and to your point, I think everybody I know is going through something. So let's, yeah, let's talk about then what we can do in terms of designing a system. Right now, the system is we, we respond, there is no system. We sort of respond to it on a case-by-case -case basis, which doesn't make any sense to me because of all of the things we've just talked about, you know, mental health crisis, COVID changed everything, faculty burned out, climate change, all of the above, why are we still doing this sort of on a case-by-case -case basis? Why don't we put a system in place that helps, you know, wild idea, faculty, students, and staff? So here's the problem with incompletes as they stand now. So you have a student who, you know, gets really sick, ends up in the hospital the final two weeks of class. They were, they were getting an A, but they don't turn anything in. If they don't 
do that final work, they're going to fail the class, but they've been doing fairly well all term. Of course, I think you want to give that student incomplete. However, the the flip side of that is that that faculty member needs to then commit to that additional work of being in touch with that student for whatever the period of extension is allowed, two to four weeks typically. And there are emails from the student, there's support with those assignments, there's checking and grading and communicating with registrars. So it's additional labor. This is particularly, I think, an issue for contingent faculty. And it it doesn't make sense to do it like that. I don't know why we can't have sort of like a flex adjunct faculty in our departments who could work with students on completes and help them get the things submitted, answer any questions, triage. Maybe they could work with department chairs if there were subject specific questions. But putting that burden on faculty, after you know, the, the day that we submit grades is like a... <sighs> Uh, you know, we we love our students and we're we're tired and we need a break and we need to rest up so we can come back ready the next term. My terms as an adjunct often run back to back. So as it does for many adjuncts, it seems to me we could create some kind of system because to me, that sort of extra advising piece of things outside of the term is a little bit outside of our scope of practice as educators, but it is within the scope of practice, I would say, of sort of our our mission of the institution to be flexible for students' needs. Now, we could talk a whole other story would be competency-based education without the strict, we start on this day, we end on this day, Competency-based education, you you go at, this is one of the beauties of it, you go at your pace and you, you meet the competencies and then you move on to the next thing. You get sick, okay, no problem. You're, you take two weeks off and then you come back and meet the next competency. I know these are wild ideas in higher education, but folks are doing that. So yeah, I think there's conversations to be had outside of the putting the burden onto the individual faculty and the individual student. I'd like us to think more. What scope of practice can do is it helps us remind us to think in systems. When we have this continued concern coming up repeated, this person is working outside their scope of practice over and over. That's a sign that the institution needs to develop a system to support that issue. Yeah. And I think I, I so treasure everything you said. And in conversing with my friend at work, I also think it's just helpful to talk about this with each other. And mm-hmm. how do we, know, especially with someone who you feel like you share some values of student care to to really hone in, but also, I mean, self-care too. So how, you know, how do we think through these things? The colleague I'm, I'm thinking of here didn't feel safe to be able to share her practices across our university in risk of being seen as being too soft, you know, which is not great in Mm. in terms of that we would set up systems where if you were to do something that came out of empathy, care, and awareness, by the way, of trauma and and the whole reason that oftentimes incompletes are needed, that we would be concerned due to our precarity that we we wouldn't be tough enough on the students, which is just, you know, so, so to find those safe places where we can explore ideas. One thing that she shared with me that, that is important to her is that a face-to-face conversation happens. And by the way, face-to-face meaning could be Zoom, could be a telephone call, yeah. but just not email. Like that that she for her, 
and part of it is for the referral process that you spoke of earlier, but that that's an important part of her practice. So then, I, oh, okay, well, that's, I love that. that's helpful. And then, and then for me, I, I find it helpful to think about what are my boundaries. So I don't have my classes quite run back to back in the way that you described, but I mean, we teach on a semester system. So it's either bumping up against some holidays or it's bumping up against a summer. <laughs> so it, it's um, yeah. thinking through like, what, what is it that I want? What is it that I need? What would, what would, how can I create my own, carve out my own little slivers of joy during those times, which can be stressful for their own reasons, having nothing to do with the work, but thinking through those things and setting those boundaries in really healthy ways. I think it's great modeling too for students to to recognize. So I'm, anyway, this is all just making me think of it because you and I happen to be having this conversation at an end of a term grades are almost due. So this is top of mind for many of us. This is such a, a pickle for so many people is this, and, and this is why I love my learning experience design mindset. So how can we design a solution to this? Like we are very, <laughs> we, theoretically higher ed is a lot of smart people in it. Like there's gotta be a better way mm-hmm. than one, you know, th- the faculty member says this student really needs this extra time. They can benefit from it, but I gotta, I gotta take a break or else I don't, I'm on the, I'm exhausted and anxious and burned out and I've got to take a break. Like, why are we forcing that decision? That hard, so you're either going to to fail the student or you're going to so- sacrifice your your mental health and well-being. That's a horrible design. That doesn't make any sense. This is why I say, why are we calling ourselves higher education and doing these things? There's a better way. Mm-hmm. There's a better way. And it's, as you said, it's going to be specific to departments and institutions and institutional types, but come on, we can, we can figure out a better way than that. I know we can. So I saw an article by Robert Talbert, and I'm going from memory here because it's been, I don't know, two, three years since he put it out, but he has this 12-week course design, a 12-week course that fits inside of a 16-week semester. So I think taking the spirit of what you said, Karen, to be more imaginative within systems and structures that might, you know, are are any of us likely to be in positions where we entirely <laughs> convince an entire institution to change schedules? Probably not, although we should keep trying, I think. But we can take what 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 we do have in terms of learning experience design and rethink the timing. And he's been just been able to structure a a 12-week course in in terms of that and then have more flexibility both for students and also for himself too. So that's some things I'll I'll link to the article. I found it powerful. Yes, I've seen that. And I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. It's a great example of what there's, there's a million ways you could answer this question, right? There's so you you with learning experience design you start from a place of empathy and then you look at the context and you come up with solutions and and what we have now just stinks so i i think that's a great example of one one way that design can answer this challenge before we get to the recommendation segment karen anything you want to leave us with in terms of questions we might ask ourselves in terms of better thinking through our boundaries and also better thinking through our role clarity yeah, so there's there's two words I want to leave people with. And I'm this is in that template that I share with folks. So the first question I want folks to ask themselves is what are my qualifications in this role? So I am not qualified to perform hip replacement surgery on someone who lives with arthritis. I am qualified 
to teach a yoga class, a general yoga class for people who might have arthritis. I am not qualified to offer a specific treatment plan for rehabilitation for somebody who's had a hip replacement, but I am qualified to off to teach a yoga class. So that's an example outside of higher ed. I would love to invite folks to think about in your role in higher education, what are your qualifications? So that's the first way you can help frame your, your scope of practice. And then the second way is the word responsibility. So what is my responsibility in this role? So for example, If I have a student in one of the classes that I'm teaching, let's say I'm teaching an intro to research class and I have a student who says, hey, I see from your bio that you're a yoga teacher. And he emails me every week to ask me about yoga postures. I am qualified to offer that advice on yoga to him. But in that role, it is not my responsibility. So just because you are qualified to do it does not mean that it is yours. So asking those two questions, am I qualified? What are my qualifications in this role? And what is what are my responsibilities in this role? I think will really help people get clear And the other thing I would say, Bonnie, that I like about this model, I've heard a lot of folks talking about boundaries, and I I just Mm. heard that word in your question. I didn't know what boundaries were until I was about 35 years old, and it's taken me about seven years of really challenging interpersonal work (laughs) in therapy and 12-step programs, in journaling, in all kinds of places to understand what boundaries are and to feel confident in, in setting boundaries for myself. I worry when we use the language of boundaries that it's asking people to like fly to the moon, right? A lot of us didn't get that (laughs) skill um, growing up. So saying like, you need to have boundaries at work is just like fly to the moon right now, right? People are like, oh yeah, boundaries. What? What is that? People don't know. So what I love about scope of practice is it's a little bit simpler, that vocational lens, think about what are your qualifications and what are your responsibilities? And if something is outside of that scope of practice, that is an opportunity to reflect on what you're doing, what choices you're making, and also to have conversations with the folks around you. When you were stating the second question, I heard you say the word responsibility in terms of the two parts of it, the response ability, the ability that we have to respond. And that almost, to me, drives Mm. to what you've been sharing throughout. There's the thinking about our roles as individuals, but then there's also thinking about, from a systems standpoint, the ability that we have to respond beyond individual expectations. And that's why it makes the boundary conversation so hard for for some of us in terms of maybe we, we weren't always taught and equipped to set boundaries, but then also thinking beyond individual boundaries to how do we protect our systems and structures such that they support the missions of the institutions in the first place. That's really, I I don't know if you were intending on separating out (laughs) response ability. I wasn't, but but I'm so glad you heard it that way. And so one of my recommendations is for folks to do this work in community. That's my recommendation, period. Let's do small, let's all do small things in 2024. Let's all do small things in loving community. So sit down with your department and do a do your scope of practice work as at your next department meeting and then do it as a division or do it as part of your committee or do it with your friend group at work or do it with the one other person that you can trust at work and have conversations about what's coming up and what one small next step might be that comes of that conversation so this is not me work this is we work and yeah i think i'll leave it at that 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So my recommendation is going to be a book this time. And I am so excited to share that I read a book in less than 24 hours, which I didn't think was possible for me anymore in my life. It swept me away. It's a very hard book to describe. And I would even recommend that people not read the back cover because I'm glad that I didn't and that I went in fairly not understanding exactly what the book was going to be all about, but I can share a little bit of the themes. It's a, a a story that involves race and also socioeconomic status. And I'm going to read one of the reviews from the back cover, which is safe and doesn't have any spoilers, but a striking and surprising debut novel from an exhilarating new voice. The book is called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. So Such a Fun Age is a page-turning and big-hearted story about race and privilege set around a young Black babysitter, her well-intentioned employer, and a surprising connection that threatens to undo them both. I don't I'm realizing now that maybe I don't have enough fiction in my reading diet at present. And so it's harder to get swept away with really good books about teaching and learning. And I read a ton of really good books about teaching and learning, but just that my entire imagination would be swept away. I had just all those so fun moments where you can't wait. When will be the next time that I can pick up that, that digital reader and put it back in front of my eyes. Mm -hmm. I would, I would find myself arriving places early and then, Oh good. I have a few minutes I could read before go inside. It was that kind of a book. And so I kept wanting to talk to people about it. I don't want to spoil anything for people that that enjoy reading books without knowing a lot. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, who's read this? Who's read this? Who's read this? And so I went on Blue Sky and searched around for the author's name and for the book title. And I found a woman who must, among other things, write book reviews on a regular basis. She's got an Instagram and another thing. So she talked about she had gotten an advance copy. As of Karen and I talking we're talking in December of 2023. This episode's coming out in 2024. You probably could not only at that time get your hands on the book, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, but I also heard on Instagram and on Blue Sky that Kylie Reed has a book coming out in January 2024 that is set on a college campus. And I cannot wait to read that one as well. So Karen, I don't know. I know you already gave your recommendations or anything else you want to recommend before we close the episode for us to put in the show notes. I have a couple quick recommendations yeah. for folks since this is coming out in January. And, and these are kind of related. So the first one is try snowshoeing. Get outside. I, in the winter, I did not want to do this. People kept recommending it to me because I said I hated winter and I don't like being cold. I run cold. So get yourself some some long underwear and get out on your snowshoes. It's something that we do as a family to get outside, get some fresh air. I love it. I'm so looking forward to it. And the the second is a book called Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And the author is George Marshall. And here in Massachusetts, we're at the end of December. We really haven't had any snow yet. We just had some really warm weather, a rainstorm. Climate change is here and it's going to impact us in so many ways, including the ways that we can have recreation and fun with our families. So what I love about this book is it's three, speaking of reading an entire book in a night, you're not going to read his entire book in a night, but you're going to read an entire chapter because the chapters are three to four pages long. I love I've been reading one chapter a night. I love feeling like I read a chapter of a book about climate change tonight, right? So 
do small things in loving community. And he really touches on the why of why so many of us don't want to talk about it or even think about it. We just are sort of living in this denial that is making the problem worse. So I hope folks will check that out. And it's got a lot of a lot of great ideas for us to consider. Karen, thank you so much for coming back once again on Teaching in Higher Ed and give, continuing to be so generous and helpful with the tools that you recommend. I am so looking forward to downloading this worksheet and filling it out myself and then getting some colleagues I trust at work to do the same and have these conversations you're recommending. I so appreciate you, your work, and even just your encouragement to me privately and personally over email has meant so much mm-hmm. to me. So thank you so much, Karen. Well, thank you, Bonnie. And yeah, we're going to we're gonna do small things in loving community and uh, we'll be okay if I think we stick to that. Thanks once again to Karen Costa for talking with us today about how role clarity and boundaries can help us thrive. I so appreciate each one of you for listening and hope that you'll extend these conversations over to the weekly email updates that I send out. Head on over to teaching in higher ed dot com slash subscribe and you'll receive the most recent episodes show notes as well as some other resources that don't show up on the regular show thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next time on teaching in higher ed